Welcome to More to Come, PW Comic World's weekly podcast on graphic novel and comics publishing, recorded <laughs> at an undisclosed location on the Lower East Side. I'm Calvin <laughs> Reed, contributing editor at Publishers Weekly. Check us out online at publishersweekly.com slash comics. I'm Heidi McDonald. I am the editor-in-chief of Comics Beat at comicsbeat.com. <laughs> and uh, you can check us out on Twitter, uh, X. At, at PW Comics World. Spoiler alert, I'm not Kate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Meg Lemke, I'm Publishers Weekly's Graphic Novels Reviews Editor. Happy to be here. All right, and don't forget, you can subscribe to more to come on the Apple Podcast app, on Google Podcast, and apparently you can't do it on Stitcher anymore. Yeah. All right, so forget about that. And on Facebook, we're at facebook.com slash PW Comics World. You know, I believe you can find us on Spotify. Uh, that is a up-to-date platform. Oh, okay. Uh, and you can also sure uh, about that? you can also <laughs> uh, leave us a note or let us know what we're doing and leave us a comment and uh, you know tell us how we're doing because we love to hear from our listeners and listeners. In case you haven't noticed, we are sound a little different. We're in a different setting. We're using a different sound recording method, and we're all kind of a little bit like, oh, how does this work? And uh, so yeah. Anyway, we are moving forward. All right. Um, and I also mentioned you can check us out online at publishersweekly.com slash comics. All right. This week on More to Come, Fables Goes Publish. Public. R.I.P. Joe Matt. When Goats Fly, a new indie publisher is on the scene. Scholastic Goes Manga. Leon Centaur rises at Seven Seas. The National Book Awards Comics List. Baltimore Comic Con and SBX recaps, and the Brooklyn Book Fair, the Brooklyn Book Festival is coming. All right. Whew, we got a lot to cover this week. Um, well, I guess the big news, uh, which dropped last week, was Bill Willingham, the author of Fables, which is really Vertigo. I would have to say. Uh oh. Uh oh. Uh, like you said, a lot of unexpected things. It's, <laughs> mine. it's really cool space, you guys. And we things are happen. here. But there's a lot of things. Things um, happen. Anyway, uh, I, I think Fables was probably the second biggest success at Vertigo after Sandman. Mm. Right? Is, is there any dispute about that? I mean, I read it. Yeah. I think it's... Uh, I, I reread it in, in light of this um, yeah. controversy, and it's delightfully well, clever. right. But I mean, it sold a lot of <laughs> yes, books, it's sold what I'm time. telling you. Yes. So, it still is. We have... Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so, uh, but Bill Willingham, who's the creator uh, of it, uh, announced on his Substack last week that um, he was mad at DC Comics, and he had a whole grievance list of things that he didn't like. Like, there was, you know, it's, it was almost like Watchmen, too, because, you know, Alan Moore famously got mad at DC over the, uh, the, the licensing and the merchandising. And so, uh, but Bill, and, and Bill was bad about that. He was mad about the game. There's a very popular game based on it from Telltale Games and he didn't like that they were changing things without telling him and he didn't like that he sat down with the lawyers and they were mean to him and told him all this stuff. And uh, so he put on this Substack that because he was so mad at DC Comics, he was putting fables into the public domain. And anyone who wanted to do their own fables could do it now. And uh, he was letting go. He would not contest it. Now, that didn't mean he pointed out that you could publish your own. Uh, you couldn't publish your own edition of the books that came out from DC because they are copyrighted and trademarked. But he was just saying he was giving away the copyright 
to the characters and, um, and you know, the storyline and the world of fables. I mean, is it news or is it like a tempest in a teacup, right? Well, you know, I know uh, some of us have read fables, but uh, Kate, who's not here this week, really is the big fables fan. She is a huge fan of fables and she's on vacation. I hope she's having a great time. Uh, but I was able to sit down and talk with her for a little bit before she went away that she really talks about what fables is, her thoughts on this, and just giving us kind of some context for why putting fables in the public domain means a little bit more than some other characters. Mm. And here's me and Kate. Uh, Kate, oof, boy, where to begin? Um, but I, I understand that you're a resident fables expert or fan and um, you know, where did that begin? I mean, were you reading fables from the start? Yes, literally from the start, literally from the start. And I'm, I'm infamous among people who know me for like always hating the first issue of almost everything, but fables started strong from the beginning. Um, I admit that once the main title that was being written by Bill Willingham, uh, ended, I didn't keep up. Um, and I did sort of wonder why, given that he clearly loved fables very much, there was a dearth of fables material created by Bill Willingham coming out. But this this sheds some light on that. No, were there a lot of fable spinoffs? Because, I mean, it had a great run and ran 150 issues. Yes. And so uh, were there a lot of spinoffs that came out after the Willingham original run stopped? Well, there were spinoffs that kept running spinoffs that came out some of them were in retrospect connected to the video game that it turns out that he hadn't even signed off on so that kind of explains to me why they sort of seemed not very fablesy to me you know i i can definitely see where if dc's higher-ups after a certain point just thought of it as a property that they owned and could do whatever they wanted with even if that was not in fact the case, that the creative direction might have wandered. Well, I want to let me back up just a little bit. And and again, I want to just point out that Kate and I are recording this on on Friday night because Kate's yeah. going off on an awesome uh, Irish Irish vacation. Um, and and again, I guarantee by the time you're listening oh, yeah. to this, there will there be will, changes. There will be a lot of new information because there's been some very strong hints that there is something, uh, several elements of the story that are not yet public. So, um, again, just bear that in mind. But, um, Kate, just just to back up a little bit, I mean, I guess we all know that Fables is, uh, you know, kind of a modern day retelling of fairy tales. And well, it's, the- it's kind of not a retelling. Mm-hmm. I think that's what a lot of people who haven't read Fables and who are going, oh, but these are already public domain characters, like what's the big mm-hmm. deal, aren't getting. Fables is very much like a sequel to fairy tales. Uh It's not really a retelling. It's like, what if these characters were still around and still had personalities that he has extrapolated in a specific way from their stories? So like Snow White is kind of a Uh go-getter, but who also has an underlying like caretaking impulse um or like cinderella is good at passing herself off as a wide variety of things that she isn't really because 
you know, in the fairy tale, like despite being a merchant's daughter, she, you know, manages to go to the party and convince everyone she's some princess or something. Uh So like, for example, Snow White ends up the mayor, well, the deputy mayor, but who's really in charge or like Cinderella ends up the fable equivalent of James Bond. Uh Um, (laughs) I, I, I mean, I think, one thing, and look, let me be honest. I mean, I read the first, like, book of fables a long time ago when it came out, but I did not keep up with the series. So I yeah. am very, very not an expert. Um, yeah, but I, it, it takes a... It, the first book is really just introducing the concept. Right, so people right. who dropped off at that point will miss out on just how much the characters are not their original fairy tale formation by the end of the series. So yes, if it genuinely goes public domain, those are genuinely different characters than you get out of Grimm's fairy tale. Well, let me, but let me, well, that's what I wanted to ask, ask you. And, um, you know, the idea of the continuation of the fairy tales, I mean, that also has been done many times, you know, notably in Into the Woods, the great Stephen Sondheim musical, Into the Woods, Into the Woods, sorry, you know, I had to do that, listeners. Mm -hmm. Um, but um, uh, I think I, I, I wanted to get from you just some idea of the scope of fables because the, um, the world. It's epic. It's yes. epic. Yeah. So um, to just give you a very basic idea of, of the concept and where he was going with this, the idea is that all these characters were living a sort of magical life in the fairy tale world. Um, and then there was something truly terrible that happened. Someone who I will not reveal who they are turns into like an evil emperor type <laughs> and, and uh, decides that they are going to just take over the magical world. And, All the characters you see in the present day of fables, you know, in what's basically Uh an immigrant community in New York, are the people who are the refugees who escaped Uh the fall of the last fortress. Uh So there's this whole epic, like, rise and fall backstory in the old country, and then... You know, some of the characters will eventually go back there to try to fix what was broken or at the very least rescue more people or something, like do some Mm -hmm. good where they came from. Um, Whereas others are maybe more rooted in the quote unquote Monday world Mm -hmm. and maybe won't go back. Right. Right. And, and and just to, to compare it to maybe you know maybe somewhat better known Vertigo series and Sandman. I mean you know Sandman is super famous for just you know the level of detail that Neil Gaiman put into the world there's, building and there's that. There's so and fables, much. Yeah. There's so much world building. I mean it's it's not quite as grand and universal a scale as Sandman because honestly, short of anything else that tries to take over world mythology, nothing is. Mm-hmm. We are talking fantasy epic level of of detail and length and plot and characters i mean this is the equivalent of like wheel of time Mm. or um wizard of oz Mm. 
or Wizard of Oz would spawn not you know, yeah not just the whole yeah the whole Oz <laughs> series right? Right, right where right. it's it is a whole fully imagined and realized fantasy world uh, with a lot of backstory and a lot of drama and a, a deep sense of scope and it was really big when it was coming out the right. people who loved it really right. love it and, and given that bill willingham clearly loved it and clearly from things he said still had stories he wanted to tell in that universe mm-hmm. it was strange that it kind of dried up well just just to jump in on on that i mean that's kind of one of the one of the reasons i i really wanted to have you part of this episode is just because um because you know there was there was a, a fables convention. I think they might have even held it more than once. I'm not sure, but maybe it might have just been once. You know, and, and there was a huge fandom for this. And when it was when the comic was coming out, there was such a huge and active fandom. And uh, like, how is the fandom? Is it staying active or it's you know, not it's really still, very active? Right. I mean, I think okay. it's dormant. It's not dead. Right. It's dormant. Right. I think pretty right. much everyone who loved fables when it was coming out absolutely by another graphic novel of fables if it were written by bill willingham there was a sort of side fandom that grew up around the very popular quasi spin-off video game um but that was kind of a little different it was very clearly like not exactly the same story very video gameized so there's like a venn diagram between fans mm-hmm. of one and fans mm-hmm. of the other they're both fine um but they are a little different and um but yeah i think it's one of those things where just like if if neil gaiman writes another sandman universe thing even today it will immediately get bought if um if a new lucifer volume comes out it will get bought um if alan moore god forbid had a change (laughs) of heart and decided to revisit uh watchmen that version written by Alan Moore would get bought, right? So we're we're we're, we're talking about something where the further it gets away from the core property, mm-hmm. the less popular it becomes. Right. So just, so just, like just, there was a Jack of Fables series uh-huh, that lasted yeah. a long time, but was written by other people, slowly tailed off. There was a Cinderella mini. It was fine. It was great. Um, you know, there were a variety right. of different fables related titles, but they're not fables, fables, fables. Right. But that said, that said, um, you know, given the the richness of the world building and, the, and you know, the depth of the characters, I, I, I mean, do you think I, I, you I can't help but I, I can't let me just I, I can't help but feel that, for, you know, Willingham's. You know, threat or offer, whatever it is, to put it into the public domain so that anyone could tell their fable stories, maybe holds a little bit more weight than it would with some other series because yes. people could do their own stories, right? Right. There's, it's it's literally a cast of thousands, right? Um, and he very clearly in his announcement of it shouts out two of his co-creators who are not bound by his contract, mm-hmm. so he is specifically saying. I think it would be great if they did a version. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, right. 
And they are people who shared his vision for the comic. So, I mean, I think he wants the fans to be able to play with it. And he himself has has said, you know, this is about fables, but also it's about his feelings about copyright. And I think that's true. Um, But, yeah, I think this is a real threat. And I also think that this is a very creator identified property. This is not Batman. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think now that he's made it so very clear how much he feels DC has wronged him. I don't know the true fans are going to buy a fables book, a new fables book from DC. If there's another option on the table, given these circumstances, whether there would even be another version possible, obviously, yes. and, is and very, think, very open to legal. Uh, yes, and as DC I, oh, statement sure. showed, we'll it's, it's, I doubt but anybody's a, really going to go up against. It's a, mm, it's a real threat, right? It's a real mm-hmm. threat. So we'll see where it goes. But I think also something that's going to fuel a lot of bad sentiment and that I can see being a an explosion in fandom. But we'll see is the fact that he says that he wrote the entire script for a sequel mm. graphic novel and DC dragged their heels. And so people are going to go, it's out there and we can't mm. see it. Like, what the hell, DC? Right, right. Well... Uh, that's this is all fantastic, Kate. Thank you so much for for taking a little break between packing for your vacation and uh, giving us some really really crucial context. Yeah, I am I am uh, the one who immediately texted yeah. the group chat that I was like, <laughs> oh my god, Bill Willingham went nuclear on Fable. Yeah. I, I, let me tell you, Kate only texts the group chat about once a month, so this was epic. Uh, yeah. uh, well, anyway, Kate, thank you again. Um, it does raise the question of if this threat holds any power, if future creators will be able to use similar things for levers against publishers. It'll be very interesting to see if this has any long-term ramifications. Well, that was interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Now, the big question, of course, is can can he do that? Can he assign uh, a real, really kind of a global sensation um, to the public domain? I mean, usually you got what you have to wait seventy five years. I mean, they, it changes all the time now, particularly with corporate owned or corporate co owned properties. Uh, and um, one thing we've learned is that, you know, there does seem to be a rather complicated um, copyright situation with the property. I mean, I think, like, it went, what, 150 uh, issue, pre- periodical issues. Right. There's over 20 trade paperback volumes. Mm-hmm. There's several deluxe hardcover editions of it. Uh, there's like a standalone hardcover that's just its own thing. Um, so, you know, a lot of people are speculating about it. I did talk with a close friend of mine. Uh, we go back to college. He's an IP lawyer. He works mostly in the music um, uh, the, the, in the music world. But he has done publishing and worked in publishing and with publishing IP. And he had, we had a very interesting um, conversation. Most people think that, and, and of course, DC has issued a statement about this. Yes, yes I think, you know, when Kate and I talked, uh, I believe DC had issued their statement. 
and um, but you know we were just saying we talked last week so we were like oh for sure there's going to be a lot of developments and um, you know to surprisingly there have been fewer developments than I thought there would be because it does seem like when DC put out their statement which was like hey hell no we own this yes. do not do not tread do not we are going to sue the, the subtext was we are going to sue your pants off if you try to do your own table stuff. To paraphrase, and, yes. <laughs> yeah. And for some reason, it really, the talk has died down. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'm sure there's private talk going on. And, and Calvin, what did your Well, one part of the statement say? that I remember that these says that fables is not in the public domain. Now, when I, uh, and I should say that uh, he based his his informal reaction to the news on your story mm-hmm. in the beat. Right. His take on it was, I thought, fairly surprising. First of all, we do know, one thing we know, that the, the characters in Fables are already in the, the public, public domain. domain. They're, they're literally Fables. They're in the public domain. <laughs> they're literally they're fables. In, So anybody so can take why? them and do anything they want Big with them. Now, what he has done is gone and taken these characters and he has reimagined them, recharacterized them, and giving them new life. And as Kate and I said, really what's important about Fables is that he created, uh, the world building was incredible. Yes. It was really major, and um, there is a lot. Like, you could easily do your own Fables fan fiction. There's so yes. much that's fodder there. Yes. There's so much, so much material there that he yes. did invent for the book. Yes, yes. Yeah, he created new characters out of old characters. Yes. And they are now copyrightable. Because they are original creations um, from the, you know, the, the public domain versions that we all grew up with. Um, these are copyrightable. According to him, looking at the story, uh, by his understanding, Bill Cunningham owns the, he owns the IP completely to those. What DC <laughs> owns, obviously, are the actual print versions that have been released. So what did your friend say? His, he seemed to think that if someone wants to take these characters as Bill Cunning, Bill Willingham has reimagined them and create new works, comics or otherwise, that they have a complete right to do so. Since the, it has been assigned to um, the public domain. Now, his caveats are this. What's in the contracts? Mm-hmm. Uh, are there covenants that would pre- prevent this? He thinks that there are likely not because this is of a novel thing to do in publishing and in literary publishing. However, it's not novel in copyright law. Software very often has this quite a bit where you have people who you know, have, have written software and, and make it open source. Right, right. Also, you know, people can assign something initially to Copyright Commons mm-hmm. publishing or photographs mm-hmm. we use. Comments, yeah, creative, creative Commons licenses, yeah. which yeah. are a little different than public domain. You know, they're initial, wanna, exactly. Yeah. They're you initial know, thing, but you yeah. can assign it from the outset. It's not... Uh, my, my take on this a little bit from working at publishers for many years um, is that the issue is that it isn't really decided until it goes to court. Mm-hmm. You know, Correct. like fair use in general and a lot of these questions are truly up to debate until a case is decided on that suit. Well, so the might of a company like DC may ultimately push something in one direction or the other, but what 
Willingham says or what your lawyer friend says in some ways is just an opinion until it goes to yeah, absolutely. That's correct. That's correct. Absolutely. Yes. He seems fairly confident. It's very interesting well, about that I mean, because I push back on that. But you know, there bit. was, listen, if he just based it on my story, which was like a, written very mm-hmm. quickly after the news broke and, you know, only based on looking at the indicia, which seems to have been very misleading, okay? Mm-hmm. Because there's all these copyright filings where DC actually, Willingham reassigned the copyright to DC. And also, this has not actually been made public to my knowledge. Um, I mean, or at least brought up in any of the articles about fables, but um, there is a contract that we can look at online because back in the day, Dave Sim, the creator of Service, was um, approached to do so to illustrate a fable story. And once he got the contract, he was like, "No way, Jose!" Mm-hmm. Uh, Dave, for all his faults, being a First Amendment, um, mm. you know, a creator ownership, uh, hardcore. Uh, and then he, he did post the, the contract online with all his markups. So I, I haven't had a chance. This was sent to me, uh, the link was sent. It is out there if you want to search for it. Uh, I didn't have a chance to write it up. So, um, um, the, but you know, but what is very clear is that this is work for hire, okay? This is, the art was done as work for hire mm-hmm. and DC Absolutely owns the copyrights to it because Absolutely. it was done as work for hire. Yeah, yes. my buddy does not contest that yeah. at all. Correct. What he's saying is the intellectual property that underlies it, the characterizations mm-hmm. of these characters, the th- that is owned by Willingham. But he's licensed it to DC for a period of time, yes. depending on the individual yes. projects. I mean, I think what... well, he's licensed these books and then right. and then are several new ones. Right. I think the other thing that's just really interesting, and I know I just just touched on this, but the. DC is clearly stating a position that they will sue, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like, they are making that threat. And I think the issue is that other publishers would be foolhardy to go against them mm-hmm. if they're trying to maintain their business status. Individuals might do it. And then it's a question of whether they're doing it as an activist. Like, the case, for example, of Andy Bayo, people might know him. He was the founder of XOXO. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he, did, he had a big fair use case that as, like, a kind of tech activist, he continued to push... Um, where he did like a tech artwork with um, Miles Davis and the cover of the album. But ultimately, someone like that still does run out of money. And Is that the guy did Bitches Brew? Uh, I'll have to look it up. There's like a big fair use case also. There's there's a lot of examples of fair use cases, but they usually are an activist statement to some extent. Like people... Well, Tom Lehrer also put his work into the public domain. Right. And it's, it's, it's not... You know, not that that case had like you. Th- that's really a great point, Meg. That you know that case hasn't been settled because it hasn't no, been brought so to court. So it's it's not a real. Well, it's not definitive until yeah. it, it until it goes to court. Now, one of the, one of the things that uh, uh, my friend talked about was that indeed, most likely, this will set a new standard uh, because you will see people put into their contracts covenants to say, well, for the life of this license, mm-hmm. this cannot be assigned to the public domain. Right. Mm-hmm. So right. you can expect so that. But publishers are going to come around and like circle the wagon. I think, according to him, yeah. he thinks it's likely that someone will do it and that they can do it and that they can win it. But, you know, until, I agree with but you, until re- it goes to court. They have enough money to, to fight more yeah, of Exactly. And until it's this really happens, there, it and will not be a definitive. Not gonna, well, we'll see, but I think a publisher's not going to do it. Yeah. Yeah, a real publisher's not going to do it, but we yeah. have seen a few people. Well, well, we had one more other com- comment. He said, this guy must really hate DC. Well, I, <laughs> you know, actually, he does. And I want to say um, there's a lot more to the story just in terms of, uh, you know, Seagate has picked up this whole story because 
uh, you know, Willingham is sort of been getting in with that faction. And, and you know what, it's too stupid to go in there. We've talked about the story for quite a bit already. So you know what, there's a lot of other things that happened this week. So let's move on. I'm sure we'll be revisiting it. And there will be more to come. No doubt. <laughs> no doubt. Oh, well, sad news this week. Yes. Um, and that uh, Joe Matt passed away. Uh, the cartoonist, he was only 60 years old and apparently was found dead at his drawing board. Which sounds really um, like he was working hard, but if you ever read his work, you know working hard was well, the one thing that Joe Matt did not want to do. But um, um, probably a lot of people, myself included, hadn't really thought about Joe Matt in a long time no. because he hadn't had any work come out. Mm -hmm. But I want to say it touched a nerve the way few cartoonist deaths have and the outpouring of writing and reminiscences and thoughts about his work this week were really overwhelming. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, I, I never met him or knew him personally in any way. I was, as a reader, I got kind of hooked on mm -hmm. his comics. And Peep Show, his work was called and Peep, Peep Show. Show. And a bunch of others, I don't remember the names of all of them. Poor Bastard, I think, something They're like that. They're all autobiographical. Well, they're, he was autobiographical uh, auto in a moment yeah. where this was just an explosive kind of genre. Not, I mean, Meg, you, had you read his work? Or? I read a little of Joe Matt's work. It's funny, I was saying earlier, and I I want to give it over to Calvin, who's really read him more. Joe Matt actually shows up in a character in other mm. cartoonist work who I follow, like Chester Brown, you know. Um, well, they were all in every, each other's yeah. books. Yeah, Yeah, but they, he, and he clearly had friends from really a lot of areas. Mari Naomi wrote up mm. something that they yeah, talked yeah, about yeah. their relationship with Joe Matt. Well, I, I mean, he, look, I've known Joe... Yeah, a background figure and a he, kind of he supporter was. of a new and generation I, in an interesting way. I mean, I met him definitely back in the 90s and uh, the early 90s when he, he really did launch the autobiographical comics um, genre along with Julie Jusay. And he mm -hmm. was one of the early mainstays of Drawing Quarter Publishing and his work was very influential. And he moved to Canada illegally and became best friends with Chester Brown mm -hmm. and Seth. And, um, you know, Jeet here... For the nation has a really mm. great, yes, it's a very, very good. It's one a, of the best pieces I've ever read. A rem reminiscence mm -hmm. of a of a cartoonist because he knew him personally and he knows the milieu and he knows the context. Um, and but but yeah, Meg, you're 100 percent right. Mm -hmm. He showed up all the time in mm -hmm. Seth's work mm -hmm. and in Chester Brown's work and and um, you know he drew them in his work. And about the middle of the aughts, he had moved to L.A. because he couldn't live in Canada anymore, and. Um, he just really stopped producing work. You know, he went to SPX that mm -hmm. year, and what he because he had a new collection out, and I, I talked to some people who met mm -hmm. him, and then that was it. You know, he did commissions and he he puddled around, but he never had any more work come out. And Seth and Chester Brown obviously have remained very pro, pro. You know, I mean, they're not prolific; they're both pretty slow. But I mean, they have work coming yeah. out all mm -hmm. the time, so they've kind of passed passed by. Maybe he would have done more. You know, it's just the. Yeah, that well, thing it's, to look at when someone's life ends so early. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, his work sort of represented this, the sort of, I mean, you know, in some way, kind of a, a, a toxic masculine oh, form yeah. of self, of, of self-revealing. Uh, and, you know, but he was, you know, it was incredibly entertaining. And, um, and as many of these kinds of autobiographical comics do, he, they, he, he kind of turned his own kind of... Um, 
I don't even know what you would call it. Humiliation. Self-humiliation. Yeah. Humiliation. Yeah. Into a, a weird form yeah. of literature. Well, he was he hilarious. Was like Peter Pan and he was and funny Jones. and, and yeah, and part. like our Crumb, yeah, you know. Yes. Well, he was very influenced by and Crumb. very much influenced by. Him, he so. was very influenced also by my man Carl Barks, uh, who also influenced mm-hmm. Crumb. So they're actually part of the same tradition. Yeah. And you know, listen, he was a really good cartoonist. I mean, he might have been a great cartoonist. I mean, his stuff was really, really solid and just you know very self-assured. And you know, he knew how to make a, a, a funny story. He knew how to tell a punchline, and he knew how to, you know, like he his, his. I do believe his work is not in print, and part of the reason I believe is just because it is really politically incorrect. I mean, he is abusive to yep. his girlfriend, and there's no yep, question yeah. about it. And you know, by the standards of the '90s, it was nothing. You know, it was nothing out of the ordinary. But by today's standards, it's very bad. But I, I will say that that Joe definitely was aware of what a bastard he was being, you know, and aware that he was in the wrong and aware that his behavior wasn't that great um, in these stories. And, you know, there's a certain self-awareness that makes it, uh, to me, not, you know, I don't want to say forgivable, but revealing. Um, but revealing and also at least you approachable, as they mm. say about the wine. You know, oh, this is an approachable orange wine. Okay, so, so anyway, okay, he was so. an approachable toxic mask. And look, and his friends love him dearly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I've heard a number of people say he nece- he wasn't necessarily the character he drew of himself. Yes. Yes. And I also think, just to say it, I also think that a lot of writers and artists who do important work, they don't have to keep doing it forever. Yeah. You know, like, whether or not his work is important. But yes, you know, I will say what okay. I think. Many of his close friends say he was very much like his work. <laughs> so All right, then. He just had a, he, there, but there was a warmth to him uh, and a self-deprecation to him that seemed to make up because mm. apparently he was a cheap bastard. Oh, he was. A uh, you know, um, you know. I don't know whether the the porn addiction was real, but it I was, suspect it, it really it was. was. All, that was all true. It's all oh, true. So true. the thing is, that's the jokes I keep saying about the drawings. It's people. very much. Uh, he was very much. The work that he and, put on the page. And you know, I'll, I'll, this is a podcast only. This is something that I couldn't write, but um, because there's a lot of Facebook posts about Joe, and a lot of them are friends locked, and so I, you know, I, I can't, I can't, you know, break the the um, trust of a friends locked post. But there is one with one of his cartoonist friends where he reproduces a very long text chain with Joe, hmm. and Joe is very frank talking about his life. But you, you know, and let's be. Uh, he, you know, he, the guy was 60. He died apparently of a heart attack or an aneurysm. Or, you know, he died suddenly at his drawing board, just dropped dead. Um, and he'd been having chest pains and didn't go to the doctor because he mm-hmm. was cheap. But it isn't that he was, you know, an unhealthy dude. Like, he walked and he was, you know, yeah. he dry. He says his, his refrigerator's full of kombucha and all this. But, yeah. you know, he also peed in a jar. And he explained that he didn't, he lived with a roommate, and he explained that he didn't want to disturb her by going to the bathroom and flushing the toilet. So he'd pee in a jar and then... You know, after a few days, which is okay, uh, Howard Hughes, uh, he would dump it down the tub. And so, you know, he had a lot of weird, you know, okay. anything that, I, I mean, I guess once you get used to peeing in a jar, you just want to do it. So, well. I don't know if the drawing board thing is real. I think that's immediate urban legend from what I've been reading. Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's just yeah. getting repeated. Doesn't matter. This is a podcast. We'll see. Yeah, you know, on a weird yeah. personal level, it was one of the first deaths like this that I heard from someone personally before seeing it broken anywhere, which just speaks to me about his personal relationship. Yes, absolutely. Same thing. I mean, I heard about it in the, uh, that morning, and uh, I, you know, until it was confirmed, which was confirmed by Matt mm-hmm. Wagner, who was a very close friend and collaborator. Um, nobody wrote about it, but yes. Uh, but you know, it's sad. Anytime. 
Uh, someone dies that young. It's very, very sad. Yeah. R.I.P. Joe Bat. Yeah. R.I.P. When Goats Fly? Uh, well, there's a new publisher on the scene, um, and it's called uh, Goats Flying Press. So it's one. It is one, the publisher name, prize. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Uh, it is... <laughs> got a really funky right? logo. It's, it's awesome. It is a flying coat. Well, I, I, I mean, it is But he the, has, like, some armor on? Yeah. It is some the, kind of goat centaur? What, what? It is the work real of fancy goat. Sebastian Gerner, who yes. is actually the editor-in-chief at TKO Presents, which mm-hmm. is one of those little boutique publishers that mm-hmm. hangs around all the time. And I keep putting out work. We just got something in And they publish awesome. really interesting comics. So this is going to be interesting to see what he does. In fact... He was on the panel I did a few years ago at San Diego, a new publishers panel. About TKO. It rest, yeah, about TKO Studios. But, okay, but this is, like uh, this is his own project. business. This is a this side project. He's staying on at TKO. Yes, he is. Yes, he's going to continue. And it seems continue. to be fully a Kickstarter. And like We mean Kickstarter, not crowdfunding, like specifically Kickstarter. So do we know, Heidi, if this is related to Bryce coming on? Is this like a new Bryce initiative? or this? No, is no, 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 no. There was, there was, there was a... Uh, in long interview with Sebastian mm. at our our friend David Harper's a friend of the podcast and a contributor at Publishers and Weekly. Contributor at, yes, yeah, uh, <laughs> I sketched his site, so he did the big intro interview. You know, the welcome to uh, welcome to comics interview, and Sebastian talks a lot about it. I I mean, I think Kickstarter was pretty well established um, before Bryce came on. No, I just mean it's a new thing, right? Yeah, so like, but no, I think Sebastian, you know, he just really talks about just wanting to do new, new things. Their first happen. book is something that Sebastian wrote, so initially it is going mm. to be a platform for his own work. Mm. Um, but I will say this, uh, and I'm sure, you know, Megan Calvin, you looked at it, but uh, I've rarely seen such a well-executed launch. I mean, yeah. they have a great name, they had all mm-hmm. this awesome logo, they have a motto, uh, they had artwork. Uh, they had the the and you know intro interview set up on a great platform, and uh, very impressed by uh, Sebastian Gerner's kind of launch. So he really managed to stand out, I think. All right. So more to come from Sebastian Gerner. Yeah. Well. Um, there is also there's Scholastic. Yeah. Now what happened there? Um, well, look, manga and uh, and and children's gra- and children and YA graphic novels. Uh, are driving the comics uh, and have been now for about the last five to ten years. Um, I think, uh, you know, uh, if you have Scholastic, you have someone who actually has been a, a key publisher in the graphic novel explosion we've seen now. The one thing that they probably could say that they haven't published is manga or manga-adjacent works. Well, maybe that seems to be changing now. It's not seeming to change. It has yeah, changed. Yeah, yeah. Um, because uh, they, uh, you know, Unico was kickstarted. This is based on a work by comics great legend uh, Osama Tezuka, uh, who is one of the all-time most influential manga artists and cartoonists, um, creator of Astro Boy and um, all this other stuff. And uh, so Unico was an idea that he had for this. It's a little bit... Uh, you know, um, was it Empath Unicorn? Is that what it is? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's you know, it, it it's, it's a little it, bit. It, um, it's 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 a little bit. Uh, Forever Twenty One. Mm. 
it's it's some kind of unite the world. Yeah. You know. So this is graphics. We're saying it's classic, yes. but I feel like right. we should say the imprint is graphics, which is yes. notably the Babysitters Club, yes. graphic novels, which you know, which is the biggest publisher of comics in the, the North America. Gotten a little manga-y sometimes, actually. Yeah, but this, you know, like our another friend of the podcast and PW contributor Rob Salkowitz kind of had the intro story about mm-hmm. this, mm-hmm. and you know, there's just some hints from there that Scholastic is going to be like this. They're doing five volumes of Unico, right? But there might be more right. manga for younger readers, yes, which there isn't is, yes. a whole lot of. This came up in Dabayoki's piece about manga and trends was that there was a gap, and that there's a lot of manga for younger readers in Japan, and obviously like a raising, rising manhwa space also from uh, manga from or comics in that category from Korea and that you know she's saying this is like a turnkey ready space and so we may this if graphics is doing it there may be a bell with it like, there's a lot of, of room for this to grow for the younger readers yeah well hell yeah Scholastic plus manga I mean, you know, about yeah. an unstoppable yeah. juggernaut. Yes, why do they get to make all the money but yeah. there you go uh, <laughs> this is like this is likely to happen obviously uh, if this sells well, we're going to see a lot more of this come out of, oh, out of graphics, yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. But, uh, and there's a good chance that it will. And also, by the way, the work is not by Tezuka. It's by yes. Hero and written by... Oh, I'd have to, hold on. I'd have to yeah. look it up. It's coming... We'll there's, it's a reimagined version yes, of this re-imagined. of this classic series. So it's not series. coming out until August 2024. So yeah, we have a while to, to hype uh, this up. Let's see. Yeah. Ah, sorry. It's August considered fall in BW previews. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, so Megan's already see. planning it for the. Uh... I literally sent it to Shannon. <laughs> I was like, please put this in a file, Shannon. <laughs> Which you know she will because she's incredibly oh. like a trap, like a, you know, I puzzle think box. Scholastic will let us know that this is coming. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes they just never do it again. Okay, yeah. so they collaborated <laughs> with uh, Samuel Satan. Uh, Sam Satin, Satin. Satin, excuse yeah. me. Uh, he's a writer. He does buzzing. That's uh, and the creative team of Gorohiro, mm-hmm. uh, which is really a team, yeah. uh, and uh, Shortino. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, there's going to be a Kickstarter to launch it, or relaunch it, excuse me. And so Scholastic is doing a Kickstarter? Bananas, well, I think, I think the uh, the creative team is Probably doing more to, I know, to do it. Or, or Tezuka Productions. They already kickstarted it. Oh, it's already done. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay, they did. They okay, they did this in 2022. Yeah. yeah. And that they're going to Scholastic is going to publish the results of that Kickstarter. I mean, Samuel so. Satin's American. Okay, actually, I'm my, my career. You're right. Yeah. They launched it, and that Kickstarter got Scholastic's attention. Right. And uh, yes. I see. There so we go. The, Thank and, you. and and uh, Guru Hero is uh, a team that that produces manga esque work. Um, so this isn't technically manga if you go right. by. Uh, the idea that it has to be all by Japanese people, which some yeah, I mean, people actually believe. So, it seems like that's really yeah. shifting. Though, we talk about it, it, there's trouble. a like shift. It's, it's not as bad or no. as aggressive as it used no. to be um, in the uh, English language manga years of long ago. <clears throat> um, so yeah, so we'll just keep watching this space. So and other things going on in the manga world um, uh, over at Seven Seas, which is a fast rising. And you know, actually, they're one of the top ten publishers of, of comics. They publish so much. Yes, they, in the United States. Someone needs to, I mean, to do a pushing. focus on them because right. they have really transformed right. and they uh, themselves. Also are- Extremely good at getting their books into review. Thank you, Seven C. Yes, they are. <laughs> there you go. Act- they get some of the top coverage and reviews because they actually submit their books. Well, uh, Meg, uh, that was probably due to their marketing manager, Leanne Indeed. Septar, who is I now... I am delighted. 
the, she is now the publisher. publisher. She has the been publisher. promoted to publisher, yeah. and uh, Jason DeAngelis, who's mm-hmm. the founder, is moving yeah. on to president. I've truly almost never seen someone so deserving. Leanne has really yeah, absolutely worked hard. She does. She's detailed. She follows up. She's pleasant to deal with. I really. She honestly, gives great quotes too. She's yeah. in the manga feature almost every year. I mean, Deb talks to her because yeah. Seven Seas books are right there. In the mix, you know, with with Viz Media yeah. and and Kodansha. she's incredibly and, hardworking, and they had a big, you know, workers' rights. Yeah, the union. Oh, they unionized. Yes. They yes. unionized. Yep. So there's yeah. there's a lot happening there, and I'm really I would like to talk to Leanne about it. Leanne, call me <laughs> 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 to find out what this all means mm-hmm. regarding the union. You know, now she's management. I don't know if she was before. Like this is also an interesting question, mm-hmm. um, but I was surprised because I mean, genuinely, the fact like how active she was as a touch point at PW, I didn't realize how high up she was. Maybe that speaks to being a small company, but I think she's had a very personal touch that would have seemed to me like kind of like an eager young professional when she's had some 20 years or something. Like, it's incredible. She's really had a long career. And so congratulations. Well deserved. Yeah, it's really great to see. And, you know, just her background. I mean, she did start writing like uh, light novels when she was a teenager. Mm. And uh, she co-founded... Uh, Chromatic Press, which mm. put out Sparkler, oh, right, which was right, their right, Greek. She worked the yeah. Sparkler. I actually, I didn't know that yeah, until recently. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so she has like a mm. really fantastic background, and uh, congrats, Leanne, very well deserved. Yeah. And and yeah, and congrats to the Seven Seas. They've really, um, I mean, they've done something that's very interesting. They I mean they've really become an independent publisher of manga in the U.S. scene. And, they do very unusual and, books, and their indie books, books are really, and they do license manga from Japan mm-hmm. as well, but. They've been able to, to create really um, original manga, you know, uh, in the West, and the fans eat it up. And an incredible range, I'll just have to say. Yeah, they have the yeah, weirdest absolutely. little books, so, and then very popular, more commercial books. They yeah. have so, huge c- congrats range. to Jason DeAngelis, who's way back. We used to have a, a beer every now and then, back in the day. I haven't seen him in years. Oh, my so. God, those early days. Yeah, we early, the first get wave. Leon on the podcast. We yes. do. We've yes. got to get her on the podcast. Yes, that's a good point. All right. All right, write it down. Uh, All right. So, uh, so uh, Meg, quite a stir Meg, at the National yeah. Book Awards. Right. Yeah. So I am delighted as the resident, um, you know, literary trade publishing person uh, that Heidi broke or just brought to attention on the beat that the Young People's List, the National Book Awards long list, was like half mm-hmm. comics. I mean, we half. all know that the kids are reading comics. Believe me, I have kids. They're reading a lot of comics. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's right. You, yes, you, you've got your market research I mean, right I'm at home. I'm truly being like, please read some prose child. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I read The Hunger Games with her just so she would read some regular words. No, but I, uh, I am amazed. There's an incredible list of titles. Um, Hidden Systems, which is a nonfiction work um, by... Dan Knott, which is about like water, electricity, the internet. Like it's actually like a great topic for kids. Um, and then the book that I think, if I was a betting lady, if you were the voter, it's going to take it is Dan Sentat's The First Time for Everything. Yeah. Yeah. So Sentat is really beloved in the picture book world. This is his first um, young people's graphic novel. I put it on the top 10 for our announcements. It's gotten tons of star reviews. Um, I want to just also mention his editors, Connie Shu, who's also Deb J.J. Lee's mm-hmm. editor for In Limbo uh, for a second. Um, Connie is actually a picture book editor who it seems is now like doing these graphic 
novels and memoirs because her picture book creators are transitioning into that space. So his background publishing story is really fabulous. She's a fantastic editor. Yeah. I mean, you're Great. seeing that here. And Dan Santet, everybody loves him. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Parachute Kids by Betty C. Tang, which is a graphics imprint book. I'm not going to name all of them. Heidi has a great piece about this. But it's a, like, real coup. Yeah, it's really five books, five out of five visual books, five out of ten, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, there have been graphic novels uh, on the long lists for the National Book Awards many times, pretty much every year. There's now there's yeah, it's almost every year. Usually in the kids, in the the young Mm -hmm. reader section, and you know, March won. March uh, was the first one uh, to actually win. But uh, Mm -hmm. you know, Roz Chast, uh, can't we talk about something Mm -hmm. more pleasant? Was on the long list, Mm -hmm. and you know, the way it works is they make a long list, and then there's a short list, and Mm -hmm. then there's a winner. So, you know, and the short list is kind of more like the nominees are. But, uh, you you know, I I, I like that they have all these lists so that as many publishers as possible can get a nice little Because the idea is really to to really uh, uh, throw a light on these great books. They're real real consideration. Like, I've, you know, I've sat on some of these juries that I know Heidi has and Kevin has. Mm. People really who are experts in the field and thoughtful and dedicated really debate these books and the fact that um, such an esteemed organization that may have in the past been a bit sniffy about comics is having this kind of expression of the support of the genre of the yeah. category yeah. Oof. the category is really incredible yeah so that's a, a, a get another coup for comics um, well, uh, what's next on our agenda, Colin? Well, um, um, there are some recent um, comics festivals and comic oh, yes. conventions. Oh, yes. yes, Meg and I hit the road, uh, and I went to Baltimore Comic Con, and she went to SPX, and then I went to SPX, because they were held the <laughs> same, same weekend, and Meg, you had a great piece on SPX. Oh, thank yes. you. In PW, you did a really yes. great, appreciate um, that. Really great uh, report. But yeah, well, but you've been every, you, you go every year. No, don't I you? don't go every year. Yeah. I go, I go, I have gone. And I love SBX, but also yes. a lot of people haven't gone recently. This is only their second time yeah. back. My first year not going. Yeah. I did not go this year. I uh, might go next year, though. You know what? Okay, I will say the one thing, just at San Diego, everyone was freaking out that Catherine wasn't there. People were asking about you, but since I do go to SBX, it wasn't quite the same, like, why are you not Catherine? So that was kind of nice. Calvin, I did feel like well, I was, like, what? in my home I love community. To hear <laughs> and people were like, oh, hey, it's so great to see you again. Um, I love SBX. It's Camp Comics, all held in this one hotel in Bethesda, which is outside of D.C., and you have to get there. It's It's like a weird little microcosm, because everything's in the same space. Everyone's together, Um, and often that creates drama, but this year I felt that it created solidarity. It's team comics, and I mean, you were there, you know, you wrote up the Ignatius, and you had some great quotes. I mean, it was just... Very emotional, It was super Mm. emotional. And um, we got to talk about the masks. So the thing that was yes. the most notable yes. thing well, is that they required masks again, and there was a very high compliance. Uh, uh, I would say almost more than last year. I think so. In the Absolutely. compliance, which it really Absolutely. was surprising to me and interesting, and including like the one of the panels I ran, they asked us to put them upstate on stage, and then they later were like, "Don't do that for the next one because we can't get the sound." Yeah. But um, we. I, it's it was a visible expression of people's solidarity with the community of indie comics, which does tend to have more folks who are vulnerable in various ways, medically, not really having health insurance, um, who are traveling to this space. That was really interesting. We know FlameCon did that too. And I talked to Warren about it. He, was, he said he'd made the decision six months ago. He says he's never tested positive for COVID, which is interesting. You know, he was like, I'm not gonna get this. Um, so, but then the other solidarity that was very much on display was people speaking 
to the attacks against literature oh, and yeah. comics specifically yeah. around censorship efforts and book bannings and people took the stage triumphant to be promoting works of people of color the queer community women to say like we are strong we are continuing to publish this work and really put a big middle finger to the yeah. folks yeah. who and, were attacking and comics. in those years who did like the, the keynote speech at the Ignatius she was fat. she was incredible yes, by I, the way I've since saw some video I have since learned because when I was watching her I was like damn did she go to Toastmasters because she had all I mean, she's a stand up comic or right something. she yeah, does she does stand up because I noticed yeah. she had you know you do the she local car you do the you do the self put down you do yeah. the, you know, you do the callback. I mean, yeah. I'm like, man, she's got all the, all the speakers. She knows how to work a room. Well, but she's, apparently she's, she's yeah. doing she's the creative comedy. check, please. Yeah. Say very yes. popular comic yes. about hockey. And she has a lot of work that is a check, please, coming out. Yes, now. she does. Yeah. So, which is really exciting. But Let's yeah. just mention some of the big winners. So, oh yeah, of course. Um, Robin Smith came up to accept for Jamila Rouse and Robin Smith's Wash Day Diaries. Um, which won for best short story, which is a chapter of the book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Robin took the stage again mm-hmm. because she was accepting for Gordita um, by Daisy Ruiz, mm-hmm. if I forget the name, mm-hmm. uh, which is published by Jamila, so not Robin, um, but Black Josai Press. And when Robin first took the stage, she was just breaking down. And also WJ Je- Lee, who took the stage for In Limbo, which won best graphic. Novel most best promising best talent. Most talent. Most Thank promising you. Talent, yeah. Best graphic novel. No surprise. Went to Ducks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, and, of yeah. course. Yeah. I mean, yeah. duh. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Really. And, and unbelievable book. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that was a given. But I think, uh, you know, Deb also was crying. And it's not that nobody's cried before yeah. at the Ignatz, but there was a lot of crying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was. I was. It was very emotional. It's so great. I mean, I just love this night, and all the artifices dropped, and all the well, there have been salty words, but it's always about. It's such a tight knit community at SPX, and the salty words are directed at outsiders like <clears throat> our crumb, <clears throat> and um, you know, this year the salty words were uh, you know directed towards those who would ban books, and um, you know, it was just really this this really fierce kind of pride, and. Um, it was a beautiful ceremony. It was. Um, it was. You know, Kate wasn't there. Some other people who were winners weren't there. Yeah. But I you think... know, look, I, I, I'm going to say this only on the podcast. Um, when I was at the Eisner Awards, mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, Wash Day Diaries has been such a award. It's won every award. Swept. Mm-hmm. Swept, yeah. except for one, which was the Eisner's. Mm-hmm. And I thought for sure it would win. And it went to, okay, it went to da- Daniel Warren Johnson. Do a Powerbomb, which is a great book. And Daniel Warren Johnson is a great cartoonist, and he was a popular winner, obviously, because they voted for him. But at my table, when they announced it, I booed. Oh, I neither of them are YA books, so that was an odd case, though, because that was the YA category. Was it the YA category? Yeah, I'm sorry. You guys can fact check this, but neither of them are teen books. That just felt confusing to me. I'm sorry, I'm an editor. It bothered me. Um, but they, I'm glad that they were both represented. They're both crossover. I mean, yeah. more Wash Day Diaries is crossover. But those women are in their 20s in the book. You know, yeah. it's not... Uh, yeah. yeah. But um, listen, a great... Listen, just a great uh, win for Jamila Rouser. She yeah, we had Robin on the podcast yes. in my roundup interviews. And, like, she... I also just really loved... She went up just really overcome. And then she just came up elated to get back on stage. And there was a real sense of the community. It was Absolutely. really just a wonderful, wonderful time. And, you know, listen, I went to Bar- Baltimore Comic Con as well. Um, and you know this show. I, I mean, it's a shame they were 
both the same weekend. Mm. Um, Some people carped about that later. Yeah, yeah. I didn't get that during the show. Fault. It just happened. Later, I got it a just little back. But that. you know, you guys haven't been. But boy, if you love Bronze Age Comics, Baltimore mm. Comic Con is for you because they have so many of the older creators, and you know it's so unhurried. And if you want to talk to um, and they have, you know, listen, a lot of indie people go there, too. I mean, normally Carla Speed McNeil goes, but they couldn't go because... Carla you know, came to, came to SPX. SPX. Carla right. loves SPX. She loves... She, the, the, every, no one. I mean, I got well, to Carla go to... Carla lives in Baltimore, yeah. right? The Carla lives in... I got to go to both because Baltimore was Friday, so I went Friday. But if you had to pick only one, I would have gone to SPX. I mean, Baltimore Comic Con, there's no comparison. You know, I'll just say, I mean, I, I wrote a piece where I talked about both shows. Um, and I've been talking to people since... Big, I don't know if you heard this or not, but um, boy, people are really upset about there being no Twitter anymore. <laughs> well, no, in terms well, of, understandably in terms so. of marketing and production. I agree. I agree a hundred percent. Twitter is, is a lifeline to me and, and an incredibly <laughs> important, I think, for the art, the comics comics promotion. And if I may just jump in very quickly, Heidi's piece, your your wonderful, uh, your wonderful rambling essayistic <laughs> meditation um, that you only you do not and this because your your SPX uh, article make is very good really too good. but Heidi has a stuff. manner and a way and you've kind of created your own form it's very Tom's of, of wandering through these cons that, that uh, that's not to be missed and I also think your your characterization of Baltimore Comic Con and SPX and 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 I think in the time that we're living in now as we trans position from another era uh, uh, that's handing a legacy of comics on to a younger generation. I think it's really important, and I thought it was a really moving well, that's piece very touching. and very, very symbolic I, I, I of the you, times I we did, live in. Uh, thank you for the praise, Calvin. I, I mean, um, it was uh, the change in going from Baltimore. And look, I'll be honest. Like, you look at the Baltimore Comic Con mm. page, and it's like, oh, they, here's, you know, an in memoriam, and there's like seven mm. names there. Mm. Like, their guests are old. They're older. Um, and, uh, you know, they. It's a it, very young show at SPX. It's, at SPX, it's like, I mean. And um, always has been. It always has been. Yes, it always has younger been. people have just gotten older over 20 years. It's what happened well, to y'all. If you're listening, spoiler. And you know what? Look, <laughs> this is why Joe Matt's death. Struck so many people. Really mm-hmm. hard because he was, he was a the young yeah. upstart. Yes. Yeah. And the last time we saw him, he was just a young guy who yeah. didn't know how to even be in a relationship, you mm. know? And now he's dead at his yeah, I mean, last Let's year, print the legend, man. Uh, We're printing sorry, the legend. Just, again, We're going to run with the legend because, yeah. you know, don't ruin a good story. Um, Listen, <laughs> we're almost out of time. Meg, uh, do you, we have a show coming up. Yeah, I just want to put out there, because for a long time I was involved in organizing it, and I'm a huge fan of the Brooklyn Book Festival has major comics and it is happening at the end of september moving into the first of october and it's september 24th october 2nd some of the folks who are appearing um either in person or virtually on the big festival day include elizabeth columba tracy white julia words i'm a huge works oh, fan I girl love julia maddie lipchansky barbara brendan croft in conversation with darren bell which is an Incredible. Yes, yes, this was, that, yeah, that's a showstopper, top, yes. Showstopper. Um, Archie Bongiovanni, who oh, I kind of wow. felt was the runner-up, who might also have taken Best Graphic Novel at Ignace. I think that was like, had a neck on Archie's had a hell of a year. Yeah, absolutely. And also, just such a like lovely person. Uh, more, there's more on the list. And then, you know, we have bookend events, which are happening in the community, all five boroughs running up to it. 
Uh, on comics, one that really everyone should get to is um, Bob Sikoriak's Carousel. It's going to run over in Williamsburg. And I just had to put in a plug that Mother Magazine, which is my other like side indie project, we have our 10th anniversary. Oh, wow. Yes, yes. This it's, year. There's a mother fest. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> We're doing Mother Decade. Um, and it's actually mostly prose writers but with new books, but then also Lisa Lim, who's a mother cartoonist who has not had a book yet, very deserved, but she has a piece in an anthology by Joyce Carol Oates coming out from Akashic. We're all reading uh, at Books Are Magic on Montague Street. And then we're going to do like an open after party at Floyd where there's bocce ball. Um, you know, everybody should come. Probably, yeah. What night is that? September 29th, which is all a Friday right. night. Come all on right. out. It's party. Yeah. Yeah. Toy Fair. Toy Fair is the same weekend. Yeah. No, this is better. Yeah. We'll have some pizza and cake. Well, listen. Well, who would pass that? Yeah, okay. right. <laughs> uh, well, listen. Uh, this is great. You know, Kate, we miss you. We miss you, Kate. We do miss you, Thanks, Kate. Kate. I hope you had a great vacation. Um, and uh, but as always, there will be more to come.